Welcome to Now with Steve Rio. On this podcast, I seek to define what it means to live a good life. How do we stay connected and aligned with our values and our purpose? How do we prioritize what's most important to us? And how do we optimize and make the most of the time we have in this life? Today's conversation is with Thara Vialli. Thara is a health coach and consultant focused on mind-body medicine with extensive training in the areas of nutrition, environmental education, yoga, mindfulness, and naturopathic medicine. This episode is a must-listen for anyone looking to increase your performance and wellness. We talk about it from an entrepreneur's lens, but it's really applicable to anyone who just wants to show up at their best in life. Thara has a ton of wisdom and experience in these areas, so we talk about a lot of things, including the importance of listening to your body, the three secret stress senses, as Thara calls them. We talk about what mindfulness actually is and why it matters so much. Thara gives one of the best explanations of this I've heard yet. We also talk a lot about discovering yourself and figuring out what your path is in life. How having a plan is a great idea, but also making clear decisions about when and when you shouldn't follow it. And then as usual, we get into a really thoughtful dialogue around death and the lack of conversation we have about it in society today. She talks about a couple different ways to think about legacy, and finally, what it means to live a good life. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and if you do, make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. You can follow me on Instagram, at Steve Rio. And if you're interested in learning how to increase your performance, resilience, and well-being, check out Nature of Work. It's a personal operating system to help you live life to its fullest. You can find us online at natureofwork.co. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Welcome, Thara. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. I have so much I want to talk to you about, uh, especially around a lot of the wellness things, but then I'm also interested in your path. So I think I want to start with how would you, how do you describe what you do? What I do is I work as a health coach and health consultant in mind-body medicine. So what that means is I have a background of medical knowledge that I can help people if they're they're working with lots of different practitioners or if they have many different um, specialists that they work with to help them have a hub to bring information to and sort through that and learn that. I'm really into body literacy, so learning about your own body and how it works so that way you can communicate about it a little better. And then along with that is some of the brilliant tools of mindfulness and breath work that you can use as a tool in your own home, separate from parsing out your medical information. So those two things come together in this mind-body coaching and health consultant world. Yeah, interesting. I hear more and more about this idea of health coaching. I've heard about health navigation, sort of helping people navigate the new world of health, because there's lots of different layers to what people believe and do and practice and Mm -hmm. all those things. Yeah, I would say, I was saying to someone the other day, it's I don't know if you've, you know what a doula is? Yes. So a doula well, would be someone that's uh, with someone 
through their birth process. And it's not necessarily about the baby. Uh, it's really about helping that person go through their experience with a knowledgeable, compassionate lens. And I say that I feel more attuned with being a life doula. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and it's being that person with others while they go through what they're going through with knowledge about that topic. Sure. Yeah, with experience doing, mm -hmm. like seeing a lot of different things and helping people navigate, huh? Mm -hmm. But life doula doesn't really have a a career term attached to it. So I go with mind-body medicine coach. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I guess nobody's Googling life doula yet. That feels like, that actually feels, there's there's death doulas and there's birth doulas. It's not, like that makes a lot of sense to there's me. There's nothing for in between. Yeah, I like that a lot. And for me, relationship is such a big part of it. Even previous to this shift in my specific career name, uh, my priority through my whole career has been about building relationships with the people that I work with. And so to me, that the only way you can be any type of doula is to build relationship, is to mm -hmm. understand that person, who they are, where they come from, and where they want to go. Right. That coaching doesn't work if there's no relationship. Yeah, there has to be trust there. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, I guess that work is also helping the people you work with build a relationship with their own body. Mm -hmm. Is that true? I think so. I, I mean, I think when you can trust, your nervous system shifts to a state that you can listen to yourself better. If, if you have your guard up because you're feeling you need to protect yourself or you're doubting or you're skeptical about the person that's trying to give you information or educate you in some way, which is, has a very authoritarian feel. If you have a, a, your guard up, it's very difficult to turn then your attention inward. Wow, yeah. If you, can, mm -hmm. if you can be in a space where you're like, I've, I can be here and not, not be concerned, not have, have a cognitive concern or have a emotional concern about my safety, then all of a sudden you can turn inwards. Yeah, I've, I've seen that with certain people close to me in my life where I, I know that the one thing they really need is to, for, their, for their nervous system to relax a bit and to open up possibility, right? Both emotionally, physically, and, and to, see, to start seeing the world a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. But that's the first step, and until that step happens, there's nothing you can tell someone when they're in that state. There's nothing you can do for them too much besides trying to help them adjust that state. Is that what you're getting exactly, at? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And what that means is that it's totally different for every person. Mm -hmm. what, what, what the situation that creates tension for somebody or blocking for somebody is different for the, from the next person. And so the only thing that's going to uncover that is the relationship. So being able to actually have a dialogue and get a feel for one another, you can, as a, an experienced practitioner, you can start to sense, okay, this environment isn't going to work for this person or this type of dialogue is not going to work for this person because over time you start to realize what takes those barriers down. You can't, it's not just like everybody needs to smell lavender and deep breathe. It's just not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, with it being you know, obviously very specific to people. Is there, what are, what would be first things you think about as first steps? Like if you notice someone who comes to you and is really got their guard up and is, or is really struggling to relax at all and able to, to open that door, what are some of the first steps and first options? Hmm. I think of what I do as, um, a little bit like detective work, but also 
like sniffing a little bit, like what what works, what what do you need? And the best part of that is that because I can use my words, I can also ask, what do you think is going to work? So sometimes it's that, you know, my my concerns about my health are overriding everything. So that's what I want to talk about because until I can go there, I can't step into these other spaces. And other people are in a different space where they say, I just want to lie down on the table and let it all release. And that's actually what's going to work for me. I don't need to be educated right now. Right. And so I think because we're human and we can communicate with one another is to use that tool that we have, which is ask questions and listen. Hmm. Do you have, because um, I want to get into your pathway to this point, but do you have did you have you done coach like specifically coaching training? Because I know you've done lots of other training, training in your life, or uh, is that just a net like more of the intuitive side of your work that you've learned over years of doing it? I would say that the skill set I have is definitely more based around the experience over the years. Mm-hmm. I technically have a coaching certificate that is for specifically diabetes prevention, oh. so it's very a specific coaching. Um, parameter. Sure. So I do have a coaching certificate, but that's not what I'm necessarily bringing into the consults all the time. But it's not that it's not valuable. There's all these very specific words in coaching around like motivational interviewing and behavioral change. And there's all these, there's a lot of jargon and lingo, but I would say the bulk of what I do incorporates all of that, that, but it's not what, I didn't know those words when I was using those things. Mm -hmm. I was using them before the coaching program. Yeah. And you've had um, we talked a little bit about it, but um, one of the things you mentioned is that in your path to where you are now, and this is true for a lot of, I'd say it's true for myself and my wife and I were actually talking about this on the ride here, um, specifically around something you said. You said, you talked about um, when in, during your journey to get here, it felt like you weren't really, sh- like it didn't feel like a linear path. It felt like going all over the place. And looking back, you can sort of see the thread or see the connections to what you're doing. However, in that path, it, you know, you were, I'm not sure, like what did it, how did, you know, what were the steps to get here and, and mm-hmm. what did that feel like? Like what was that experience like? Like I guess that's a big question to, to start. Like is there a sense that you, knew what you would want exactly what you were trying to do say a decade ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago or was it there was some other essence there and you were just trying to figure out what that was i think that the essence has all often has always been the same but as as a human that wants to have something to hold on to there was always some particular definition around what it would look like every time. So every time I would reassess, let's just say in high school, I'm thinking about what I want to do. And I think about my, I think in my high school yearbook, I think it was what will, what would I be most likely to be doing was like, what's your ambition? And then what would you most likely be doing like a joke? And so my ambition was to be a doctor. And then my, uh, my what I would most likely to be doing was barefoot falling down laughing somewhere. Wow. And so in a way, I feel like both of those were actually true. I, I had a sense that I wanted to have that quality, barefoot falling down laughing somewhere, as well as the quality of what I thought it meant to be a doctor. So there's the essence of there was something about it inside of me that the doctoring does that thing that's inside of me. 
And that's the best word I can come up to articulate what that is. And then as I move through the different degrees and through the different career paths, it was really like, okay, well, it's people. It's working with people. So that's like the doctor word, separating out academia or scientific um, research. Research, or, yeah. yeah that, that side versus working with people. So it's like when you're 16, 17, you don't, it's very, the, the words are, are large and mean a lot. Um, and the divisions are very broad. The categories is like, are you going to go into business, science, arts? And you don't realize the nuance yet. Yes. You don't know exactly what it all means. But like, oh, if I go down that path, there's, and I think every teenager probably has that. There's an essence they can't articulate. And it draws them to that one really, whoops, sorry, um, really wide path where there's there's many nuances of how that works. So somebody who goes into even in towards medicine, they arrive at the multitude of choices and some is non-patient-based work at all and some is really relationship-based and some is all patient-based but problem-solving-based. So it's, as you start to get in, you realize, oh, actually even this field is more nuanced that I could po- than I could possibly imagine. You can never really understand it. So then you get to a new fork in the road and you say, okay, now where is my essence drawing? Mm-hmm. And so each path that I've taken, it's like, oh, the, the, the texture of what I want is in here, but I don't know what it is that's in there that's going to deliver that. Yeah. I just have a sense that it's in that career. Mm-hmm. And so as I go through that path, I think I never wavered as I went through. So even, as I said, I had all these different paths of first I went into, wanted to be a doctor, and then I went into nutrition because I thought that's a good way into medicine like i think i thought that way i think i was like that makes the most sense why would you, why wouldn't you learn nutrition before you go into med school uh, and then i took a year off and i were i did volunteer work <clears throat> in costa rica in a really amazing program called canada world youth and they there i thought a lot more about farming and because that was part of what we were doing there we were doing a lot of engagement with the environment and again, I chose that Canada World Youth Program because there was something in me that I was like, I don't want to work in all the other categories. I want to work in environmental stuff. I don't know what that meant, but I knew there was something in me that was saying, nutrition is great and there's something missing from it. And I came back and I thought, hmm, how do I go somewhere where there's people studying nutrition connected to the land? And that was at UBC. Yeah. And so I continued my undergrad there. And so it never felt, so from there, then I did a degree in environmental education. So from the outside, that looks very strange. Like, why would you go from nutrition, people-based, into a totally different turn into environmental awareness and, and education? But for me, the essence was still there. There's, this set, this, there's that quality of what do I want to do? Where would I most likely show up? The combination of nutrition and environmental education, which was really systems change-based, is all the same thing, but I can't articulate that at that moment. I can just say, no, it's part of the path. I just can't say why. Yeah. So that's part of the puzzle, right? Mm-hmm. It sounds, you know, and when we talk about health and we're starting to finally talk about it in a mainstream way about just how holistic it has to be, right? It, it does, our environment, of course, affects our health. Our nutrition, of course, affects our health. And as far as I understand, in medical school, you often don't learn anything about nutrition or there's some, there's, there's a kind of a gap there, isn't there? I'd say there's a gap. It's not a high priority in 
medical school. I, I didn't go to medical school, yeah. but but, uh, but when we do the breakdown of the schools and what, what we see they put their hours into, it's it's a very low percentage of hours, of educational hours that they put in. And more importantly, because even all the education I've been through, when you have a practical or applied career, so you have a, a theoretical base that you learn in your schooling, then you have an applied applied space, so medical school would be that. <clears throat> it doesn't, what you learn in that theoretical space, even if they learned 10 to 15% of their hours in nutrition, if they didn't actually use it in their in their day-to-day applied work and their residencies, then they're not going to retain it anyway. Yeah. And so the reality is that it's it's a low percentage of hours in the schooling, but even still, the system that they work in has no place for that to fit either. Hmm. Even if they had a large content base, they're the way that the- Yeah, the system doesn't really address nutrition that much. It's so interesting how the you in the system you have to, and to the point of what you're doing, I guess, is- you go into one and they're one area and they're very focused on specific biology or things other areas focused on you know your mental health it's but the two are connected they're, and yeah. your nutrition and your environment and your and your relationships and all of these components they fit together mm-hmm. and right now the system is a bit fragmented there's people like yourself who are starting to put those pieces together mm-hmm. in my master's program the a large focus was called systems thinking which is a very specific way of uh pulling multiple ideas together. And I think that is possibly what drew me to that particular program because I couldn't articulate it, but there was something about that that academic way of thinking that was how I wanted to do my life. Mm. To say there are millions of pieces and they all fit together and I want to live in a world and in a space and, a, and have a life where all of those pieces are held instead of compartmentalizing them and addressing one at a time is seeing that yes, there's value in pulling on one corner of that web, but if I don't recognize that I'm pulling the rest of the web with it, Mm. I'm I'm at a loss. Um, It doesn't mean I shouldn't pull on it, but I have to recognize that web. And the whole program that I did in environmental education was that. It was about how the web is built and it wasn't just applying to environment. Yeah, of so it course. allowed you can me apply to apply that right into everything else, any mm-hmm. other aspect of life. Mm-hmm. So the the title of what I did, the the degree name looks very specific to environment, mm-hmm. but what I learned and what I could take from that was actually applied to living. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love, you know, I, I think often when people are young, and I speak in high schools quite often um, to entrepreneur programs and things, and and often I talk to grade elevens and twelves, and I always one of the first things I say is. Right now you're being told by everybody that you need to pick a lane and and that there should be some specific lane that you're going down and that doesn't really exist. It can exist. You there are traditional lanes that you could you could follow the path and be a doctor or be a traditional dentist or something or a lawyer. But even then there's so much nuance and for you to like it's it's crazy to expect to know what your lane is yet. Mm-hmm. And it strikes me that like you said you you had a general picture of where you wanted to go and what you were, what the essence of what you wanted to do is, but it takes time because you got to try things out, learn them, apply them to your point. Like you can learn a bunch of information. It doesn't, it's not knowledge until it's applied. Mm-hmm. So to try those things out. So there's a, there's a, there's a path there. It's just being discovered as you are taking each section, I guess. And I, and I also think it's valuable 
to check in what every with oneself of what is it that allows me to think clearly. And so for some people, picking a path allows them to have their their nervous systems calm down and then they can start to think clearly. And for others, picking the path is anxiety producing because it's putting them in a box and then all of a sudden they can't think clearly anymore. So I think one of the most important things for all of us teenagers all the way to elderly is to just to learn how we learn, learn how we cope with the world. And if for me, making a plan is going to make it easier for me to think clearly, then making that plan and making choosing that lane mm -hmm. is critical to me to be able to make a decision later on that puts me in the right spot for me. Yep. But if... Yeah, too much precarity is not your mm -hmm. mode. Yeah, so, if yeah. that's the and mode. And knowing what your mode is. Yeah, know your mode. And instead of know your lane, know your mode, right? Yeah. And I think... I think for there's a common phrase that is it is important to plan, but it is not important to follow that plan. Yeah. And so as long as when someone says, I'm gonna be a doctor, they're okay with a change in the plan. But the the decision just allows them to move forward in some direction. Mm -hmm. Because for some people, the the paradox of choice is the choices and the opportunities and unfolding, it's it's paralyzing. Yeah, so you need, it's like a narrowing so that you can focus on something for the time being and then to being open for things to change for your infor, for the information or the, yeah, just your perspective to continue mm -hmm. changing. Because I didn't walk into each of those spaces thinking that I was going to be open to possibility. I went in thinking, I'm going to be a nutritionist and then I'll be a doctor, which right. I didn't do, but that allowed me to move and trust that there was some essence pushing me in that direction. Mm -hmm. And as long as I didn't put blinders on and say, even if I hate it, I'm gonna keep going, that's where the problems show up, mm -hmm. right? Is that if I can't continually check in and say, okay, was, is, is this still working for me? Uh, but I, if I didn't choose those things, it, I, I think there would have been, well, I can be anything, then what does that mean? Yeah, which is, it's just kind of, yeah, when there's too much options, you can, nothing happens, mm -hmm. almost, right? There's, yeah, yeah. But then also just what you what you described. I think the checking in with yourself regularly. I guess one thing I realized for myself, I think a year ago or maybe a little longer, but I realized, oh, I have this narrative about what I want to do next or what I'm trying to achieve, like the place I'm trying to go with everything that I'm doing. And when I finally checked, I checked in with that narrative again. I realized, oh, those aren't that's not where I want to, that's actually not what I want to do in mm -hmm. five years from now. So let's adjust the steps that I'm ha taking today to more align with what I believe I will want and then to continually do that. Because I think we can think we know what we want to do in five years and that's not often, it's often shifted a little, at least mm -hmm. a bit. Yeah, we should expect that. There was a statistic around this generation being average of five careers. Mm -hmm. I think it, I don't remember when it came out or which generation it was, but I just know that our parents' generation was not that. So our parents' generation, you had a job, you had a pension and it was, you were just set. And it's interesting because that statistic of previous generations had a job and they stuck to it and current generations are going to go through five careers. That uh, is seeming to bring up the idea that there is anxiety about those five careers or the idea that, oh my goodness, that's so unstable. Right, there's a precarity to that, mm -hmm. yeah. But, but what's interesting about that is that, that is, that's the actualization of saying, hey, this isn't working for me anymore. Uh, maybe I'm gonna shift. It's not, you're not being forced into five career changes. People are changing careers because 
I mean, I don't know why everyone changes careers, but on, on the whole, it's because the terrain is changing, people are changing, and that perhaps, perhaps going through your whole life in one career for some people was actually terrible for them, most likely, right. because they didn't get a chance. They, got, they stepped into one thing, they got a lot of job security and financial security, but they had to put blinders on for all the rest. Right. Yeah, and, and job security is, it's an, there's an important base layer to that in terms of overall life security, but a lot of people look back on their careers going, well, I wish I did more, I wish I spent more time doing X, Y, or Z, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, so we there's a freedom. We are in a new world around that, where there there's also just seems like a new, yeah, the, the, the a lot of the norms that we were built up. I think, I, I, to me, it strikes me that after the, First and Second World War, it was like, we just want calm and steadiness and the economy, and we just want everything to be good and stable and everybody to have safety, mm -hmm. which is fair. And, and, and now we're, we're in a bit of a, a bigger evolution around what we're up to. And I think it, 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 instead of it feeling like something has broken or we're not serving our kids properly or that everything's in chaos, it's like, this is an exciting time. We're in a different... We're in a completely new world with new parameters and new challenges and new opportunities, and that's going to look like a whole new path. And that that's that's not anxiety producing. That's exciting. Mm -hmm. It is. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of um, so you've been, you've been going through these various paths in terms of your knowledge and in terms of your how how you deliver what your essence is and what you knew you were going to deliver but also along that path you're learning to be an entrepreneur and and figuring sort of the business side out of what everything that you're doing um what has that path felt like for you or yeah what yeah what what's been cuz i think you mentioned that you're you didn't come from an entrepreneurial family necessarily you're is that true? Definitely not. Yeah. So, a a when did you first know that you're just going to be doing your own thing versus working for someone? Is that something you've always known, or? <laughs> I was just talking about this the other day when I I had some memory of realizing that I was an entrepreneur, whether I liked it or not. <laughs> I think that's for most entrepreneurs. We just kind of either somebody tells us like you're never going to get hired. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, I, uh, right out of my first degree, I created this program called Fresh Food Schools because I was really excited about teaching kids about uh, about nutrition and how it related to land. And so mm. I hired a, a group of people from the the fourth and third years in that program. And I, we built games up from scratch. Like we didn't take them from something else. We thought what would be a fun way to explore these concepts. And so we built these games. And then I had an opportunity to to get a grant from the Legacies 2010, which was the Olympics yep. fund pr prior, like many years before that, they had a lot of money to make this city better. And I, I built this program and we ran it through all the community centers. And <clears throat> at the end of that, the person who had said, who had prompted me to get that grant was like, this is so great, we should continue it. And I remember feeling really scared and I, had no plans. I didn't have another job lined up. And I said, I'm traveling. And then I went and booked a ticket to travel somewhere because I just way too scared to take it on. Right. 
And How because old would you have been there? Around there? I, I mean, I really wish I was younger, but I was 23. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but I really wish that that had happened to me when I was 16 or 17, something where I could really start to see, okay, what's my fear? How do I challenge that? And so that happened and I booked a flight to India to visit my family and I was like, I'm gone because I have to be gone because I don't want to take this tr- this responsibility yeah. on. Uh, because it was a it was a pilot project, and then I didn't understand that the idea of a pilot project is you might continue it. And I thought that's way too big. I can't. Sure. And it was also because in the process of that, I'd built a budget for it, which no one had ever taught me to do. And the person said, "Wow, this is really great. We love what you've built. Could you do it? Could you do it twice a day?" And I said, "Oh, sure." And I didn't ask for extra budget. So I went into the hole oh, wow. to make yeah, it happen, of right? Because I just said, okay, Classic yeah. Classic first business <laughs> kind of moves, right? You're just excited to do the thing. Yeah, so I was sure we'll do more work and I didn't think I should ask for my, more money. And so that was the piece that was running through my head. I was, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I just went in the hole to make this happen. I will not do this again. So I ran away as fast as I could. And then I came back from India and there's all these, uh, a lot of things come up like emotionally, psychologically from being there with my family. Uh, But I come back and I'm like, okay, I'm going to work. I'm going to work for somebody. And so this organization contacted me because of that program because they're like, oh, you really know a lot about this. And I went in and I was like, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to be an employee and like for a career as opposed to an employee working during school or something. And I walked in, they gave me a bunch of cards and I sat down, I was like, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, when a report comes in, like you can read it. And I was like, so what do you want me to do while I'm here and nothing's happening? They said, well, just like fix, like you know, fix up your desk, get used to the place, get oriented. Like, and I was like, I don't understand this. This is not like, I work very efficiently. I'm not gonna sit here for 80 hours until one random thing comes in and we slowly build whatever you need for a nutritionist for. I couldn't understand the concept of of nine to five work coming and work just showing up when it shows up. I yeah, thought. of your time not being used efficiently. Used efficiently, or yeah. And so I, I after three days, I just didn't have the patience for it. I, I three just, days, three days, right on. I was like, this is not for me. And so I said, I don't think I can work for you. I need to go do my own thing, where like I'm always working, where I'm doing something towards something all the time, hmm. or I'm not doing it but I'm not just sitting here. I have better things to do with my time. Not that that's, <laughs> that's like, that's a 23 year old's brain. No, right? but I understand that, yeah. And, uh, and then I went and I worked at Lululemon for a couple of years as an employee, but understanding that that was, was like, it was a space, I worked on the floor. So it was a space for me to figure out how am I gonna do what I wanna do next? Yeah. It wasn't, okay, now I'm gonna work for another company and then be an employee in that company. It was, it was a solution for the time being. Yeah. To figure out your next moves. And when you work in a retail store, when you work in serving, you're doing yeah. all the time. Yeah. And I couldn't. And Lulu was growing like crazy. crazy. And it's like busy environment and a fun. Yeah, it was before fun. they went public. Yeah. And so we were really excited all mm-hmm. the time about everything we were doing. And so it, it was a huge learning. I learned so much there, more than I could have learned about myself in an employee environment where I was secured with financial resources. And, but I remember that moment when I, I quit that, that organization where I thought, oh crap, I think I have to run my own businesses. Like I didn't understand that that was called an entrepreneur at that time, sure. but I was like, oh, that really uncomfortable feeling of going in the hole. <laughs> I'm going to have to do that again. <laughs> get used to that. 
<laughs> because that was more comfortable than sitting down yeah. and doing nothing. I'm exaggerating doing no, nothing. but I understand. I've been trying to tease this out as I talk to folks too about how do you know when you're an entrepreneur? What does it mean? There's And, and it, the, these things come up where it's like you didn't, you didn't, it's not a choice. It's like a realization. That's mm-hmm. the first thing. I think that's just a real, a real thing. Like for me, it started in, in high school and the bands I was in, I was just the CEO of bands and organizing crazy things right. that nobody else was doing, you know? And, and I was just, and then I had a couple jobs, but then I just never had a job because I get, I got fired from jobs and I <laughs> did great when I did my own thing, you know? Yeah. And uh, the other part is I think a desire to be moving something forward in a meaningful way. Like I think what you described, I can't sit around and wait for something to happen. It's less about being busy. It's more about feeling like you are making something, whatever mm-hmm. that something is. Yes, at exactly. A pace that you're, and there's kind of an insatiable pace, especially when you're in your early years of, uh, there's, uh, and it actually hasn't slowed down for me, but, <laughs> but there's kind of an insatiable pace to that too, mm-hmm. and desire. And I, and I think it's also that uh, sense of, I understand that when I'm not, when I'm working at that pace, I, I don't have to be doing something. It's not just busy work, but there's there's a hundred percent focus toward that goal. And then when I'm not focused on it, I'm not. And it's it's like all in and then not all in. Like I'm mm-hmm. focused on my family or my life, or I I I really separate those two healthily. And I think that there's the the realization that one is an entrepreneur, and then there's this other piece. Because I think sometimes people choose to be in an employee setting because it is easier in that setting to compartmentalize the work. And it mm-hmm. is difficult as an entrepreneur to do that. Mm-hmm. Because so one of the things, we might have that insatiable pace and that drive, and then we also have to say, do I have the skill to be able to draw a line? Because for sure, in the early years, you can do that and it doesn't affect a lot, but if you continue that path into many years later, that can impact all your relationships. That For sure, you might have successful businesses, but in terms of w- what your life is to you, you can lose so much. 100%. And so there's like, there's the drive within oneself, and then there's also saying, do I have the skill set or do I have to build a skill set to be able to draw some lines around what's important to me and actually just use that skill set of of that pace and that efficiency in a prescribed time. Mm-hmm. So I think that's like a nuance about entrepreneurship that we don't talk about a lot. It's such an, I mean, that's literally what nature of work is about, is about being efficient and being, getting a lot done, but doing it in a way that is is like a holistic view of your life. So not only get your work done and be efficient and productive and and those kind of things but also your wellness is a huge factor in your ability to be smart and creative and high performance and your relationships are super important in terms of your well-being and your physical and mental health and you know all of the compartments like of your life they need to be considered equally for you to be the best business person mm-hmm. And a lot of people can get, you get away with it for a decade yes, exactly. or so, and then, and then it comes, usually comes crashing down or some people make it till their late forties and then their marriage falls apart or mm-hmm. these things, whatever happens, but you see this all the time because yeah. we, all we do is talk about the business side of how to be a high performance business person, not a high performance human. I think there's a big difference Huge between difference. those two. And I think that comes back to that web. If you picture your life as this web, if you only pull on one yes. part of that web, 
sure that web, that corner is gonna go way further than the other corners, but eventually, I assume a spider web eventually, I know it's very strong, but eventually it will break. Yeah. Um, and then it will be detached from the web. Mm -hmm. And that's destructive no matter how far you've gone with it. Yeah, and you, there's some language you use um, around resilience and stress. I think you called it like the secret stress sense or something like that. Is that something? Yeah, the, the secret secret stress senses, yeah. What, what does that mean to you? Uh, so we often talk about the five senses, so mm -hmm. taste, touch, smell, sight, sound, and or hearing. And those are all, those are all very tangible, obviously, for us. And the ones that are hidden to us are ones that are, are sending us more mis messages. So when we taste something, we can tell on a, on a gross level versus subtle level, we can tell, oh, that's you know, that's really probably rotten. Or right. we smell something and it helps us understand whether the space is noxious or soothing, et cetera, for all of our senses. Uh, but we have three other senses that we don't talk about a lot. And those are the ones that are the subtle sensors. And so those sensors actually give us more information about our environment and how we're feeling inside. So I call them the secret stress senses mm. because they are the ones that actually alert us to stress more than our eyes. Hmm. Right, So our eyes can see a situation unfolding, but it's the inner senses that are actually picking up on danger or not danger. Right. Um, so the three senses, one of them is proprioception, which is often considered as how you move your body in space, but it's, it's also knowing your proximity to something, just as simple as, am I gonna bang into that door? It's not all your eyes, it's also these sensors inside of your joints that allow you to understand where you are in space. And then there's interoception, which most people haven't heard of. So interoception is how you feel your heartbeat in your chest, if you feel butterflies in your stomach, if you feel hunger, if you're sweating and you can tell you're sweating. Some people have not developed that sense in themselves, even though that's a strong sense. So it would be like not, have, not having a sense of smell. It changes how you experience the world. Not having an interoceptive sense doesn't mean you don't have it, but if you don't practice that if you don't um, like a connoisseur would for coffee or wine if you don't spend some time in the interoceptive senses you have a more uh just like those lanes you have very broad language for what that feels like i don't feel good right as opposed to oh i have i'm feeling even simple as i'm feeling nauseous is is getting there right or oh my heart is racing something's going on i didn't notice Right, five cups of coffee, or something, <laughs> right? But yeah, yeah. And then the third is neuroception, which is what I so I called interoception your gut sense, mm -hmm. and then the third so proprioception, interoception, and uh, neuroception. Neuroception is what I call your spidey senses. So this is how uh, your I would say it's a little bit similar to intuition as opposed to instinct. Mm -hmm. It is the things that you can't articulate that you're picking up on in a space. So it could be. I mean, on a very large level, it could be that somebody who's really aware of building code walks in and they can't articulate, but they say, mm, this is not an earthquake safe space. Mm -hmm. And they can't say what it is, but their neuroception is pulling in signals that they can't bring to their cognitive space yet, their frontal cortex to so say. The nervous system is telling them something. Yeah, because they've, they've trained their systems in that way. But, that, yeah. yeah. So if someone walks into a room and there's a sense, oh, 
Did some, did we, are those two just, did they just have yes. a fight? Like that's that. That's, that would be neuroception. That'd be neuroception. But, and again, it has to be, you have to work that skill just like any other, you have to get the connoisseurness of yeah. that, right? And that. Yeah, and the reason I, I asked you about that, I guess, in relation to what we were just talking about in terms of balancing out the aspects of your life and being a great entrepreneur versus having being kind of a high-performance human is that those senses, I think, are things we don't talk a lot about in terms of recognizing when your body is fully maxed out in terms of stress. Like, mm -hmm. for instance, I am having, this is the busiest I've been in a decade right now, and... um there's just things going on, like massive changes in my life going on, all for the good, but just incredibly busy. But I'm also practicing, like when this happened to me a decade ago, I didn't have any of the same tools that I have now. And so at that time, lots of things fell apart in my life because mm -hmm. I was just unable to cope and manage. And this time I'm very aware that, oh, my back is much tighter than it normally is. The, this muscle that I will always pull when I get to a certain point of stress like yeah. those things I'm, I'm aware of the tension on the right side of my shoulder and I'm aware of my heartbeat a lot more or, you know and just and so so that I can I can um, be aware of those and then mitigate those by making sure that I'm getting my meditation and getting enough mm -hmm. sleep doing these things so um, yeah I just think it's I, I guess I, I'm, I'm just thinking this through for myself too right now is like if for people to start developing those those skills in order to, I guess, manage their energy levels through their work a lot better. Yes, I think everything you've spoken to is, it's your body is talking to you. It is telling you things. And if you're not listening, it doesn't mean it's not happening. And so if you can learn to hone that skill to listen, you're going to have a much better outcome because you aren't just a cognitive space. You're not just from the head neck up, right? You're, so whether we want to be or not, we are connected to a sensory system that is in our body that will tell us what's going on around us. And if, if we're not listening, like if, if you don't look, it doesn't mean that the car crash isn't happening. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> and there's what, a ton of information. So much information. And I think one of the key things that's coming forward, more than just having enough energy, is that especially for entrepreneurs, that the cognitive space or the cognitive function works less efficiently and less effectively when the stress response is triggered on. And so if you don't have a message, messaging system that says this is not working well right now, you don't know. You think your cognitive function is just fine and you're making decisions and you don't know why you're getting into the situations you're getting into where perhaps if you were listening you would recognize, whoa, I've got to dial something back. I've got to work on something because I'm not thinking clearly, right? And so even interactions with potential people that you might be working with, all everything that seems like things aren't flowing properly or whatever decisions you're making are putting you at higher risk than usual, that's all based around whether your nervous system is guarded or basically whether it's firing and sympathetic, which is your fight and flight or not. And so it's, it's more than just energy. It's really about actually being better at that, at your work. I know a hundred percent. That's exactly, that's exactly, exactly right. And how, if, if, um, this is a new idea to someone completely, um, I think people are starting to think about this. I hope it's not a brand new idea, but if this is a new idea to someone, what are some 
very what's what's one simple thing that someone can do throughout their day or on a daily basis or irregularly whatever to start that listening process to start that check-in process with with like connecting the mind and the body what we know is that from the evidence base is that slowly walking being and slowly walking around nature very specifically increases your parasympathetic which is your rest state and it decreases cortisol levels which is your stress main stress hormone on the long run and so we know that that is something that people could try and there's a practice called shinrin yoku which is called forest bathing um which is taken that to its scientific rigor to say this works um the sense the sounds the smells specifically of trees mm-hmm. have shown to to change people's nervous systems and so if you're based somewhere like that that's something that would deliver mindfulness outcomes and then the other very simple piece is is finding spaces in where there's a flux of awareness and focus at the same time and so when we're completely focused on something but relatively unaware that's the state of flow so six at mahali um mahai and that's a a guy who wrote a book about a guy he's just some guy he's a big guy he wrote a lot <laughs> he wrote a lot of things <laughs> he's basically a half a chapter or half module in nature of work too yeah. oh great yeah. yeah so the state of flow is is focus without awareness and it's where entrepreneurs live a lot it's like that's why i love i don't want to sit around and and wait, I can get right into focus and flow for a long time and not know what's going on around me. And that's a lovely space to be. Yes. But it isn't mindfulness. Yes. It's not the same, even though it feels really good. Um, and then there's being aware, but not super focused. And that is, that's kind of what I would say is, <clears throat> it's not mindfulness, but it's, I mean, it's awareness. It's sitting in a space, witnessing, recognizing. And then mindfulness, very specifically, is to bring your awareness to a focus. So you're saying, I'm going to look at this beautiful scene, or I'm going to look at this bottle cap, whatever it is that you choose. Hmm. And that you say, I'm going to practice with my brain how to focus on a thing without it being my flow state. So it's a specific Uh. state of the brain that is, it's like you're working the muscle of mind. Yeah, it's a training. It's a training method. Yes, exactly. Okay. As opposed to, it's just being mindful, which is a different thing. Just being mindful is being conscious of how you are in space, being aware of that interoception. That's living mindfully. But mindfulness is a real. It's a practice, and to do that, it may be when you go walking through a forest or when you go walking through the city is you start noticing you you make an intention to say i'm going to just notice how many yellow cars i see but do that in a really calm way Hmm. or i'm going to notice i'm just going to sit here and focus on this uh beautiful pine cone and i think it's really neat i would say fire a long time ago around campfires a long time ago people still have campfires but not in a city (laughs) um like the way back when probably just because i'm not in a city i'm not in a rural environment anymore but um around fire people get very mindful they get very focused on the flame and they're but they're not they haven't left the room 
they're still around the campfire together looking at that fire. You mean they haven't mentally left the room? Yeah. Yeah. Whereas in flow state, you're 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 gone. And you're off in space. There yeah. is no time at that point in and flow. And it's beautiful. Yeah. It's so beautiful. And entrepreneurs are really good at that. Mm -hmm. And so I think for entrepreneurs, it's really figuring out that that flow state that feels really good is not mindfulness. What we need is practice and staying here. Yeah. And not being distracted and noticing everything. And why? And so... For some, like, why does someone need both? Like, why? Like, flow states are great, and it's a, it's an, a, it's an amazing way to get something done, and it's, it's, it's a big component of delivering credible work. And there isn't. I, I agree with you. There's a necessity to be present and to learn to do that. Why do you say that? Uh, yeah, that's a super important and not talked about a lot. I think that's actually so key because we say mindfulness, mindfulness, but why? And so the, the real practice, so the reason we build it like a muscle as opposed to just living that way is because that is what allows the brain to come out of that sympathetic nervous system state. So I think even think of movies sometimes how they're like, snap out of it, snap out of it when someone's losing it over because they're distressed, whatever, uh, some incident happens and somebody's losing it. That snap out of it, like that's the the large and obnoxious way to do mindfulness <laughs> is it's like that's that's an external person saying like you need come here be here and focus on this like look at this thing that I'm going to show you even though it's not related to anything start to learn how to take yourself out of distress because when you go into distress mode uh your what's your amygdala flips up and your whole job is scanning you are no longer engaged in conversation in a way that's about relationship. You're no longer engaged. Like your lizard brain, which is very the, similar, most, yeah. the most primitive part of our brain, right? Which mm -hmm. is really all its job is to keep us alive at that point. Exactly. So we're not really taking in all information. We're actually literally not hearing things. Very or seeing things for what they are, at, you know, in that moment. Yeah. Yes. And so that is why to, to take you out of the flipped lid is one word for it. And the other is the... Um, is the lizard brain, uh, to take us from that lizard brain into the current day, the current state, what's actually happening. The, the way we do that is through the muscle that we develop through mindfulness practice. That skill is what you're going to need in those mo stressful moments. Yeah, that's resilience. Mm -hmm. And you yeah. can't just pull it up without practicing. It's like if you don't work out your muscle – and someone hands you like a hundred pound weight, which I would not be able to lift right now because I haven't been practicing that. <laughs> but Neither if I. someone handed me that, I can't just be like, oh, okay, now we'll do it. Right. Now we'll, now we'll get it working. It's like you have to build the muscle first. That makes total sense. That's, and that's a great explanation. And I think um, this is why I think oftentimes when you are under stress or you feel like there's a really stressful something happening, you look back and you go, oh, the answer was so obvious what I should have done in that situation. Or you or you finally calm down and the next morning you go, oh, I'll just do that. Like you're the problem solved. Mm -hmm. But in the moment you can feel like there is no answer and you're spitting and there's just like you think you're working really hard on something and nothing's happening. And that's and that's your brain kind of in shutdown mode. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think it happens a lot in um, in moments where we don't think we have an out. So we think we have to answer the question now. Yep. And that also is the lizard brain saying, solve the, solve the problem now. Whereas even in a, when you have a clear brain, you would even say, I'm going to sleep on it. So even give, you don't give yourself the out even. 
that right. the solution has to be done now. That's right. You don't even, yeah, like, I, and I've seen that for folks too that I um, talk with and work with a little bit is that, yeah, when they're so stressed out, they can't even, they can't even recognize the stress. Therefore, they can't even mitigate the stress, let alone solve whatever the thing that mm-hmm. is causing the stress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it's proven. They make bad the, choices. The choices are the, we know from studies around socioeconomic stress uh, mm-hmm. that that not even... Uh, a momentary stress, like uh, alone that when we when they've done the work and the studies around how people who are under severe stressors, regardless of what those stressors are, is that their decision making powers are are equivalent to doing something under substances. It's yeah. like you just can't make the decisions that are are you can understand consequences from. Mm-hmm. That it's like you just make a decision that seems to solve the current feeling. What are what are your routines in terms of um, staying in touch with your, like, keeping your mind and body well connected, being aware of these like interception, neuroception? Like, what are your? Do you have daily practices? Do you have a specific, like, how routine oriented are you, or is it? How do you how do you think about it for yourself? I love routine. I'm definitely a, a creature of habit. I have a small family, which makes it difficult to follow routines. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would say about five years ago, when I was kind of in the pit of another like entrepreneurial dive, mm-hmm. I, I needed routines. And there was, and I'm grateful that I didn't have a young, a small family because I was able to take those routines and do them every single day. And that's what got me back on track. So simple. Yeah, talk about that specifically, actually. Mm -hmm. And so, so now it's slightly different, my routines. But at that time, uh, I remember that um, my, a movement practice was, is the way that my brain soothes itself it like irons itself out if i am able to do a movement practice in in a flow state so i get to kind of leave the room and move move it through my body and so yoga is where i come from in terms of like my practice of physicality and so that it's a game changer for me because i can the emotions that i'm not able to get out of my head and into anything would allow, would come through in that practice. And so that was invaluable for me at the time when I was like deep diving. And uh, another is, for me, is picking what I call my three things a day list is three things that are important to me that need to be accomplished. So it's not my to-do list. Mm -hmm. It's okay, I really, I really wanna make sure I take a bath tonight. I really want to make sure, so nothing gets in the way of that. And I really want to make sure that I uh, call my friend and the other main thing is eat breakfast. Like whatever, on any given day, it's like if these are going to be my pillars, my beacons for the day. And yes, I might do other things. And if I'm really falling apart, I'm just going to do those three three things. Uh, But they're mine. They're not other people's. Yeah, and they're not a they're not a work related task. There are three personal things for you to do, mm-hmm. and they can be tiny and they can be large. And some of them might end up being work related because, but I own them as opposed to I need to do it for somebody else. It's like, oh, I really wanted to finish that that article. 
because it was meaningful to me to finish it. And so it could end up being work-related. And I, there are things that ha can be accomplished in that hour or that, sorry, those hours. Uh, not something like design and implement my new strategy for my business. That's like a giant thing, right? So <laughs> it's really specific and granular and something I could check off at the end of the day. And I would make the list for the next day. That pulled, that pulled me out. And then I read this great book, which is probably just cliche at this point, which is The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, and there was something about it. He uses the term, the, what is the word? The, I'll never, resistance. He calls it the resistance. So the resistance is the thing in you that will self-sabotage, the thing in you that will take you down. You're a little hater. Do you know who uh, Jay Smooth is? He's a hip-hop DJ. Oh, yeah. In, I think so. So he has a he's a hip-hop DJ in New York, and he has a great series, video series, and he's very authentic and vulnerable. And he has a great little clip about the little hater, because he's an artist and an entrepreneur in that sense. And he talks about how the little hater keeps rearing its head and it just stands there and tells you. It's not a new concept, but he does it in a wonderful way. And so the little hater is the resistance. So I put a big piece of paper across my wall during that time. And it just said, I will never let the resistance beat me. And every day I woke up and I looked at that and I would say it over and over when I left the house. And it's such a simple term, sentence. Nobody, it doesn't mean anything to anybody else, but it landed the, for me when I read the book at that time. And so it was the thing that allowed me to question myself when I was about to make a choice. It's like, is this the resistance coming up right now? Because you're really in stress state. So you're more than likely going to try you're to like wriggle your way out of this discomfort. And so ask yourself that question every time. When I came out of the hole, I didn't need to say that to myself every time. But when you're in stress state, you need something that will like check you. So that, or I needed something that would check me. And so I used that phrase. It worked really well. Those are my three things. My three things a day, that poster that I put up on my wall and, uh, and a, a yoga practice. And a movement practice. Yeah. Is it a specific type of yoga that uh, you focus on? Yeah, it was flow. It was a flow practice okay. because I definitely have for 20 years, that's been what I've done. So. Got it. It's, I would say it's partially because it is the most familiar to me, right? Because for 20 years, that's what I taught and practiced. And so it's like coming home as opposed to flow being the magic. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is my home. So it feels good and safe. Nice. And how do you look back on that time? That was about five years ago. It sounded like, and I think we, we talked about it before a little bit, but that was just a really tough financial and business moment in your career. Mm -hmm. Things might have crashed altogether. How do you look back on, what do you look like, what do you, what do you think of what happened now? What does it mean to you now? Or do you look, do you, does it still bring up stress? Do you look back on it as, well, that's when I really learned this about me or my business or, you know, what? Yeah, uh, yeah I, when I look back on it, I have unending gratitude for my parents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's... For their support? For their support that, because uh, I called as like, I can't pay my rent. Mm -hmm. What am I going to do? And they are just, were just gracious. And they said, we'll help right? We'll help you until this 
date, figure it out. And there was no questions, no judgment, no like, why haven't you figured this out by now? You're 35. Like, what? what is happening? And it's in- incredibly gracious for people who come from such a long um, sorry, not such a long time ago <laughs> for people who came from a different generation where, and especially as immigrants from a different country, like you don't come here and fuck it up. Yeah. <laughs> you don't come here and just say, there well. There was no second chances for them. Sort yeah. Of thing, right? So yeah. to say, to look at what I was going through and say, you're okay. Well, like you'll be okay. You'll figure it out and we love you and we trust you. That's amazing. And so, so much gratitude for them. And then also one of the things that I feel really happy about was during that time, and because I had the capacity to beg for that support, was I wrote a lot. And in that writing, I, I mean, I've always written a lot, I've always journaled a lot, but I wrote in a way that I, I curated. So I, uh, I wrote a journal entry and then I would turn it into a prose or I would turn it into a poem. So in a way it was like, taking whatever I was experiencing it, but not turning it into um, stream of consciousness, but actually saying like, how can I mold this? How can I turn this into something? Interesting. Like and, a, cath- a cathartic practice of some kind, but yeah, yeah interesting. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a really great healing practice for me and to, to take that and to see all these things about myself of like, where, where am I, stumbling blocks are without them feeling which in my history have always been as soon as I find something that's wrong with me then I just hit myself over the head with being that (laughs) and uh instead it was like hey here's a stumbling block and like instead of losing yourself in the rumination and the speculation and the all of the going down that spiral it's like that's something about you that's really interesting you're gonna have to catch that more and often than not and that writing process allowed me to see it beautifully rather than to see it as a as a flaw that I should flog, right? Uh, and so that was huge because I don't think I could be in the state that I'm at in right now, which is relatively equanimous about fluctuations of where my life is going, where my career is going, even different organizations that I work with and for. It's like all of the flux that's happening everywhere, even in our planet right now, there's this sense of like, okay, I'm not, I'm not equanimous in the sense of I'm not paying attention, so everything's calm inside of me. It's more like, well, we'll, we'll, we'll work with what we can do is how I'm feeling. It's like, okay. And I couldn't do that if I wasn't able to articulate and write down and see the me inside of me in a beautiful way mm-hmm. and and be at peace in right inside there so that anything going on around you can do that mm-hmm. you still have that peace to yeah to and and i can engage with it without it taking me off kilter because i think that's one of the struggles like when when trying to center oneself i know for me that it there's been this binary of either i'm in or i'm out either i'm engaged in all the stuff that's going on but then i'm swung around with it or I'm like blocking myself out, censoring in the sense what enters my space because I want to be centered. And I think those practices that I went through in that deep dive really helped me secure this centerpiece engaged with the world. So I'm actually, I'm actually more likely to engage with things that are distressing because I don't feel 
knocked off kilter. Right. Yeah, there's like a center of gravity there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so those are my practices. Right now, it's interesting. It's like the things that I do is, one is I have breakfast with my family every morning, which mm-hmm. seems simple, but it can be knocked off very easily. It's like, oh, well, I have to get all this stuff done, and mm-hmm. it'd be really nice if do breakfast earlier or whatever the answer is to like being more efficient with my time. But mm-hmm. it's actually a very mindful time in our household. It's quiet, and it's playful, and... It's and very I, present, too. If yeah, it's it's actually a great mindfulness practice just to have breakfast just to have or breakfast. spend 10 minutes on the floor with your child or whatever. Yeah, and to make that a choice to say I could be doing something else, but I actually have I want to do nothing else other than this. Uh and and again, it seems simple, but it's something that we're very quick to brush off if something comes up. And so I think I had to go for a blood draw, a fasting blood draw, and I said, "Oh, I can't come in at 8 for a blood draw." That's and they said, why not? I said, well, I'm having breakfast with my family. They were like, but you have to go get your blood draw. I was like, well, I'll fast during the day then because it was too important to me. I mean, obviously, sometimes I do, but. I understand. But, but that, uh, like, that wasn't good enough. That wasn't a, a good enough break, reason. Yeah. Yeah. To break that rule for yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then the other thing I do is, what is the other thing I do? I just had it in my head and it's gone. Oh, hmm. it will come back. Do you have, um, do you do you have a meditation practice at all? You've mentioned terms that come that I I've heard in the vipassana world. Uh, you've mm-hmm. mentioned a few different things, but do you have a, any meditation practice? I I dabble in meditation. Yeah, I will have a meditation practice for a short time, and then I will shift into a mindfulness practice. So there's a difference. So the meditation practice is taking that med- meditation practices is the gym for that mindfulness. Yes. Right? It's a way to keep that muscle working. And it's one of the ways. Yeah. And so I I practice, I have different gyms, I guess is what I say. I practice mm-hmm. mindfulness in different ways. And so sometimes I'll do that through a meditation practice. And sometimes it's just not the gym I want to be at. Yeah. But I don't lose the mindfulness practice, if that makes sense. That instead, sometimes I say to myself, that the way that I'm going to approach this is I'm going to go for a walk every day mm-hmm. and partic- like specifically focus while I'm doing that instead of listening to, to listening to a podcast or something. Yeah. Um, and so I take, I take the mindfulness practice seriously, but I don't take the meditation practice as the way to do it. Yeah. That makes total sense. Um, just shifting gears a bit. Do you, um, do you consider yourself a spiritual person? What does that word what mean? What does it to mean? You? Yeah, I yeah. guess that's the question is what does spiritual mean? Uh, or a religious person, or like is there a. Uh, here's, here's what I think about myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I assume I know nothing. And mm-hmm. I also think that for stability, most of us need something to tether to we need that sense of the lane that we're in and the plan and i think all the different lanes make sense you mean uh religious religious lanes spiritual lanes whatever we call the different ways that we approach how to navigate the uncertainty of existence and 
they all seem wonderful to me. And I also think I know nothing about what is what it means to be spiritual or what it is to be religious and what it what the outcome of that would be or but I do I feel like I know what the purpose of all those things is uh-huh. but I don't know in terms of the purpose of wanting to feel I I have an understanding of what it means to exist here on this planet. Yeah. So some of that might mean the Gaia spirituality, some of that might mean spirituality with another cosmos that might be spirituality with a an omnipotent being all the different ways that somebody considers why we're here um but i definitely feel like extremely open to not committing to anything 100% yeah and there's no because i know nothing i have nothing to criticize like i can't say this doesn't exist this does exist i really None, none of us really know, but we all have good ideas. Uh, yeah, so I think that really it's like, well, what's going to work for you? Does this does the concept of environment land better, or does the concept of a being land better? And whatever is going to work for you to s- go outside and say hello, my brother, then do take that one. Do you think about death much? I think in general. I think about it a little bit about how there's a lot of focus on death without a lot of dialogue on death in our society. So there's definitely concern. There's a lot of fear around. And that's what most of even anti-aging or most of health and wellness plays off of the fear of death without calling it a fear of death. It's like making your current status what you have forever. Mm -hmm. Like the concept of change into an eventual demise is not appealing. And so we want to capture who we are today and keep it there. Or acknowledging that any change is inevitable mm-hmm. in terms of those things, right? I, Death is yeah. sort of the final stop of a whole bunch of changes we try to pretend we can <laughs> yeah. walk yeah. through various things. <laughs> yes. And uh, I think that alongside that, I, I think that's great. If that's where we want to go as a society, we're pushing towards change and trying to adapt who we are and better ourselves except we don't talk about death. We just talk about not dying. And so we don't often have conversations with our loved ones around how will we, how, how do we want to approach that? What does it look like? What does it mean to us? Uh, and so I do think about it in that larger societal sense of, of like we wait until the end of a certain time and then we, we like write a, we write a will and we hope we never have to think about, we don't even talk about death in the will. Like we just, Really, we're talking about our stuff yeah. in the will, and so I think it's worth talking about. Like, well, what do you think happens to a body after its life has been taken from it? And so, those are things that I think are worth talking about. But it, but it comes back to that all of a sudden makes all of these religions not just things that we all have in our back pockets anymore. Then all of a sudden we have to face each other's truths and say, "Oh, that's not what I think." And if if you're right, then I must be wrong is how we live. And then we're like, we can't talk about this then. <laughs> yeah, it becomes very sensitive, I, I mm-hmm. guess, yeah. Uh, so from that, and the other reason I think about it, my father's uh, 92. Oh, wow. And so it's just a normal conversation at this stage <laughs> of like, oh, well, who died today? And so we talk about death in general, and we're very conscious of what. what... How, how open is he in talking about his own mortality and 
facing it. Yeah, very, very easy. I mean, I wonder, I, I mean, I don't know what people expect to be an easy conversation, but I think we're having an easy conversation about it. Like mm -hmm. what he wants with his body, what he thinks about people or and souls. And we talk about that and, you know, we say, oh, we might die this year. Like we talk about it. Well, yeah. And he's very healthy. Like he's in Newfoundland. He just shoveled three meters of snow by himself. So, or three meters, one meter. I can't remember how much they had. Um, yeah, he just, he's healthy. But, uh, but we talk about it very regularly. He goes, oh, you know, this year might be my last trip. Might be over this year, but every year he stays alive. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, and, and that seems like a very healthy way to, to go. Like if we're going to talk about life, we, we should be talking about our, like we often sort of hide end of life mm -hmm. or medicalize it. Yes. Or only start talking about it once it is uh, distressing, once the person's very sick and it becomes attached to sadness about some, the person's quality of life. Whereas my dad's quality of life is great. Right. So we can talk about it before we get to a stage where we're sad about something else, which is his life quality has decreased. Yeah, and make choices before it's stressful and we can't make good choices about it in mm -hmm. those moments. Right. And it's soothing to have a conversation with people that you love about what they think might happen to their bodies and their souls and mm -hmm. to have those dialogues beforehand. Um, it just allows for an understanding of yourself and question, it's, in, it's reflective, it's, it's a meaningful conversation with the person you're speaking with, right? It's not necessarily negative, I think is what I mean. As we talk about it, it's just passing conversation uh -huh. um, as opposed to being weighted. Yeah, which is which is great. That sounds really healthy. I feel it's healthy. I think it's um something that comes from having a strong relationship with the person you're speaking to. So I mm -hmm. think for some people, they don't reckon with their relationship with their parents until their parents are gone. Mm -hmm. And because it's too hard to whatever interactions that they've had with them have been challenging in their lives and they can't get past that to have a deeper discussion. So it's almost like being able to talk about death is being able to talk about one's values and beliefs about being. Mm -hmm. And to get to that stage, it's like a barometer of your relationship with that person. Mm. And so it's not that the conversation itself is the deepest thing. It's that to be able to do that without being angry, without being fearful, without being frightened. That's it's a marker. A marker of, of where, where you're, you're at yeah, with where that you're person. At with, yeah. And so many people haven't, because of, distressing relationship with their parents, which I think of the first people that leave us, hopefully that's not, it doesn't happen the other way around, um, that they, that it's too hard to get to that state. And so we, we have to grapple with our own stuff with them first. Mm -hmm. So sometimes that happens before they pass and sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, do you think about legacy? Or is it something that's important to you or... I ask this to almost everybody because I'm very fascinated. I had never thought about it before having a child, even though I knew the concept of it. So I even did, I did this, I goal you with Chloe Gaudiart. And uh, in that she talks a lot about legacy and I did all the, all the homework, but I, and I understood the word legacy and I wrote things down and I thought that I was thinking about legacy but I was just kind of thinking about what am I leaving behind? Like what, like, what would I describe it? Like? As if there was to be a, 
history book or a a eulogy about what I created for the world right. was my legacy. And then after having my daughter, the concept of legacy changed for me. It shifted into what am I doing right now for the next generation? So like actually quieting my voice more, whereas in the other version of legacy, I was amplifying my voice. Oh, interesting. You're, yeah. You're narrating more about your own life. Yes. Versus thinking about other lives and what you're doing for those other yes. lives. Yes. And I didn't recognize that until, until after. And both are valid ways to leave a legacy. It was just, it's just so interesting, the switch. It just happened. And doesn't mean I won't still amplify myself. I won't, right? There's, there's things I'll still be doing, but the concept of legacy, that specific term really feels oriented to what am I doing to make sure the next generation is okay? And, that, and it has this really... Yeah, it feels very caretaker-oriented. Interesting. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I really like that. Do you, do you feel like there's a specific role for you in this life? I think I'm questioning all of that, of that right now. What is my role in life right now? And what does that mean for who I am? And I would say the one path that has come through the most. So again, it's like looking back and saying, what is that essence that has come through? And my skill set and my passions create a role for me that is teacher. And I don't mean teacher at the front, but I think that everything I have done in my life has been oriented to guiding, coaching, facilitating. Even I remember I was I used to run a lot and I would always run with the people who would be like less confident or a bit scared to be running. No matter where I was in capacity, I would always be with those people saying, here's a good way to manage this situation or here, like, let's do these little sprints. I'd always want to be with those people. Like that has, that's been the draw for me in everything I've done in my life. Uh, and so I think that is my role and in anything I do, even going forward. And my hope is to work in some healthcare policy eventually of shifting how we see what health means, which is really what you're approaching in the nature of work. I want to think of the nature of health, really. And that, I think, I, w I want to do that to impact and help people that are being at the edges or falling through the cracks. Uh, and that is where, that's where I work the best. So I think my role, and teacher is the word that comes for that, but I don't know if there's a better word for that. That's, I like that a lot. Um, and so what does it mean to live a good life? For me, living a good life is, it's connected to how I've acted in a day and whether my behavior and actions have aligned with what I consider ethical and moral. And so if that doesn't align, I usually have trouble sleeping at night. 
because it weighs on me heavier than consequences, big consequences that are not those. And so to live a good life is to be able to sleep with yourself at night. (laughs) That is such a great answer. I love it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. That's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe wherever you're listening. And you can follow along with my life on Instagram at Steve Rio. For show notes and other info about the podcast, check out natureofwork.co forward slash podcast or find us on Instagram at natureofwork.co. And if you'd like to learn more about how to increase your performance, resilience, and well-being, how to increase the quality of your work while lowering the stress and anxiety you feel, definitely check out Nature of Work. It's a personal operating system that has transformed my work and my life, not only the quality of my work, but how I feel every day. And with that, I'll leave you. Enjoy the rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.